Dear Father, please be with us right now, very close to us as we think about these wonderful words in the book of Psalms. And uh, these are really a model to us of prayer and how we can communicate with you. So may our understanding uh, bring us to a closer intimacy, friendship, and understanding of how we can talk with you. Amen. Well, first I want to go through a little bit more the life of David. And then we'll talk about the Psalms. You know, we went through Psalm 51 last time. So we're kind of uh, interchanging here a little bit. And we mentioned this last time, but in 1 Samuel 17, about Goliath, he ran to him, stood over him, took Goliath's sword out of its sheath and cut off his head and killed him. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they ran away. And what I want to do is contrast a little bit. I mentioned last time, uh, boy, this is often held up as here the, the great story of David, how he went out to Goliath. And it is a, is a great story, but I'm going to use light here as a way of illustrating this. Dim light and bright light. Is this a the bright light truth revelation about God here, cutting off the head of a giant? Um, it's interesting, you know, we have so many kids' books of this, and not one of them actually shows the decapitation. Uh, you know, you see the, the stone and all of that, but um, uh, no picture of what happened after Goliath got um, hit in the head. Although we did buy one uh, video uh, for our kids, David and Goliath. You know, you think that's going to be pretty uh, innocent. And um, we heard this uh, shouting from the TV room because we weren't there and we came in and Goliath's head was practically a fountain of blood just coming out from, from the wound. So uh, not all of the kids' stories are you know, entirely, entirely pure, but that one was, uh, was shocking for a five-year-old. <clears throat> okay, so we'll go through bright light and dim light. And I'll make the illustration that uh, we've been trying to answer the question, God declared David to be a man after his own heart. What does that mean? <clears throat> And I would say that some of the bright light stories about David are to be found uh, much later in his life at a time of great, great uh, humiliation. And so let's pick up here with the story of Absalom. Remember we talked last time, God predicted here what would happen because of uh, David's uh, adultery and killing Uriah, that something horrible would happen. And of course, David had a son named Absalom. After this, Absalom provided a chariot and horses for himself and an escort of 50 men. He would get up early and go and stand by the road at the city gate. Whenever someone came there with a dispute that he wanted the king to settle, Absalom would call him over and ask him where he was from. And after the man had told him what tribe he was from, Absalom would say, look, the law is on your side, but there's no representative of the king to hear your case. And he would add, how I wish I were a judge. Then anyone who had a dispute or a claim could come to me and I would give him justice. When the man would approach Absalom to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out, take hold of him and kiss him. Absalom did this with every Israelite who came to the king for judgment. And so he won their loyalty. Does this remind you of anyone? I mean, this is really uh, satanic, isn't it? You flatter, you praise, you um, subtly undermine... Uh, David. And this went on, and uh, after a while, a messenger reported to David, the Israelites are pledging their loyalty to Absalom. So David said to all his officials who are with him in Jerusalem, we must get away at once if we want to escape from Absalom. Hurry, or else he will soon be here and defeat us and kill everyone in the city. Now, there are several very interesting events, uh, I find, that reveal something uh, wonderful about David here as he flees Absalom. 
First, as the king and all his men were leaving the city, they stopped at the last house. So they're just running for their lives. All his officials stood next to him as the royal bodyguards passed by in front of him. The 600 soldiers who had followed him from Gath also passed by. And the king said to their leader, why are you going with us? Go back and stay with the new king. You are a foreigner, a refugee away from your own country. You have lived here only a short time, so why should I make you wander around with me? I don't even know where I'm going. Go back and take all your people with you, and may the Lord be kind and faithful to you. This is really counter uh, the way our whole kingdom of the world operates here. You would think David would want all the fighting men with him here as he's fleeing the city, and even tells the, the man, go back and stay with the new king. Uh, there's uh, humility in this and uh, really a trust in God uh, for his fate. But it gets uh, more interesting here. Zadok the priest was there and with him were the Levites carrying the sacred covenant box. They set it down and didn't pick it up again until all the people had left the city. The priest Abiathar was there too. Then the king said to Zadok, take the covenant box back to the city. If the Lord is pleased with me someday, he will let me come back to see it and the place where it stays. But if he isn't pleased with me, well then, let him do to me what he wishes. Again, wouldn't you think David would want to keep that covenant box? Uh, remember the two sons of Eli were using it as a good luck charm, take it out to battle, keep it with them. And David here again, I think humility, trust in God. No, keep it here in Jerusalem. We're not taking it with us. Um, again, I think it says something uh, good about David. But now this one's interesting. Uh, Mephibosheth and Ziba. And after I, uh, this is just a little background here so that you can understand what happened as David was fleeing so that you know the, the, the roles that these two men would play. There was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba. This is much earlier. And he was told to go to David. Are you Ziba? The king asked. At your service, sir, he answered. The king asked him, is there anyone left of Saul's family to whom I can show loyalty and kindness as I promised God I would? And Ziba answered, there is still one of Jonathan's sons. He's crippled. Now, normally when you become king, boy, you kill everyone off who could possibly uh, threaten your kingship, but not in this case. So David met him and said, don't be afraid. I will be kind to you for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will give you back all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always be welcome at my table. Mephibosheth bowed again and said, I am no better than a dead dog, sir. Why should you be so good to me? And so he ate with David at his table, relative of Saul, again, kind of counter to the way the kingdoms of the world operated at that time. But anyway, now in this case, David is fleeing the city and this servant, uh, Ziba, meets him. When David had gone a little beyond the top of the hill, he was suddenly met by Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who had with him a couple of donkeys loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 bunches of fresh fruit, and a leather bag full of wine. King David asked him, what are you going to do with all that? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for your majesty's family to ride, the bread and the fruit are for the men to eat, and the wine is for them to drink when they get tired in the wilderness. Where is Mephibosheth, the grandson of your master Saul? The king asked him. He is staying in Jerusalem, Ziba answered, because he is convinced that the Israelites will now restore to him the kingdom of his grandfather Saul. The king said, so he betrayed him. The king said to Ziba, everything that belonged to Mephibosheth is yours. I am your servant, Ziba replied. May I always please your majesty. Now, it turned out this uh, was not true. Uh, Ziba was most likely lying about Mephibosheth because as David is returning, 
after fleeing from Absalom, Mephibosheth meets him, came down to meet the king. He'd not washed his feet, trimmed his beard, or washed his clothes from the time the king left Jerusalem until he returned victorious. When Mephibosheth arrived from Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Mephibosheth, you didn't go with me. Why not? He answered, as you know, your majesty, I am crippled. I told my servant to saddle my donkey so that I could ride along with you, but he betrayed me. He lied about me to your majesty, but you are like God's angel, so do what seems right to you. All of my father's family deserve to be put to death by your majesty, but you gave me the right to eat at your table. I have no right to ask for any more favors from your majesty. The king answered, you don't have to say anything more. I have decided that you and Ziba will share Saul's property. Let Ziba have it all, Mephibosheth answered. It is enough for me that your majesty has come home safely. Now, what I find interesting here is, you know what, wouldn't we expect Ziba to get his head chopped off um, after this kind of a thing? Well, when King David arrived, one of Saul's relatives, Shimei, oh no, I'm sorry, this is, I skipped a verse here, but, you know, the, the men were encouraged here, let's get rid of this guy for lying, and David just kind of graciously uh, treats them both with kindness, especially the servant. Okay, again, counter to the kingdom of the world. But this one is most remarkable of all. Number four, as they're fleeing, one of Saul's relatives, Shimei, came out to meet him, cursing him as he came. Shimei started throwing stones at David and his officials, even though David was surrounded by his men and his bodyguards. Shimei cursed him and said, get out, get out, murder, criminal. You took Saul's kingdom, which was not true. And now the Lord is punishing you for murdering so many of Saul's family. And we just read how David treated one member of Saul's family. The Lord has given the kingdom to your son Absalom, and you are ruined, you murderer. Abishai said to the king, Your majesty, why do you let this dog curse you? Let me go over there and cut off his head. And David said, This is none of your business. Now, interesting here, David certainly had the power to cut his head off, right? But he chose not to. Again, here we have him cutting the head of Goliath off. Now, that's different here. He's standing up for God in this case. But here, having the power to do it and not doing it. So David and his men continued along the road. Shimei kept up with them, walking on the hillside. He was cursing and throwing stones and dirt at them as they went. Imagine doing that to an army. The king and all his men were worn out when they reached the Jordan where they rested. Now, they come back and they cross the Jordan. And notice as the king was getting ready to cross, here's Shimei back again. Now they're coming back into power. And Shimei threw himself down in front of him and said, Your majesty, please forget the wrong. I did that day you left Jerusalem. Don't hold it against me or think about it anymore. I know, sir, that I have sinned. And this is why I am the first one from the northern tribes to come and meet your majesty today. Abishai spoke up. Shimei should be put to death because he cursed the one whom the Lord chose as king. But David said to Abishai, Who asked your opinion? Are you going to give me trouble? I am the one who is the king of Israel now, and no Israelite will be put to death today. And he said to Shimei, I give you my word that you will not be put to death. Again, it's very counter to just the way uh, things were in that time. You'd expect him to be killed as they fled, and certainly when they would come back. Okay, so again, having the power to cut someone's head off and not doing it, uh, that is a a brighter light, I would say. Now... um, What I would say here about light, and we'll finish the whole talk off on this, is that when we are in a dark cave, spiritually, 
God will give us dim light. Because, you know, if you've been in a dark cave for days and days, you don't want to come out into the bright noon sun, right? And so during this dark time of the Old Testament, God has had to reveal dim light to try to bring people into the greater light. So the power to kill giants and cut off their heads uh, showed great faith in God, but it was a dim light revelation relative to love your enemies. And uh, no more eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Love your enemies. And when we needed it, God would uh, give us someone like Samson with great power and strength, but the power to kill people and so on, it's, it's a dim light revelation, again, relative to Jesus. We'll talk about the story of Elisha and the she-bears. Really remarkable. Elijah just went up to heaven and uh, you know the people are just so unimpressed, they mock Elijah. And they say, hey, you go up too, Baldy. And so we have some she-bears. Very dim light revelation. God is powerful relative to the bright light of what Jesus Christ is like in character. And so we see that again in the life of David. And of course, ultimately, the clearest bright light revelation we'll ever see is Jesus, especially his death on Calvary. And in fact, everything of greatest importance culminates at the cross. Um, The character of God, clearest revelation of God's character at the cross, the inherently destructive nature of sin revealed at the cross, the character of Satan revealed at the cross, the character of you and I, the religious people at that time, you know, the people who read their Bibles and kept the Sabbath and did all the commandments who were eager to crucify Jesus, tried to break his legs so that he would die so that they could keep the Sabbath. The the character of everyone here is at a central moment revealed at the cross. Well, we'll spend more time uh, talking about that, obviously. But let's get in uh, a little bit more. And actually, I have to be honest here because some of you are going to read about Shimei and uh, what happened. And just before David died, he gave this instruction to Solomon. There is also Shimei. He cursed me bitterly. But when he met me at the Jordan River, I gave him my solemn promise in the name of the Lord that I would not have him killed. But you must not let him go unpunished. You know what to do and you must see to it that he's put to death. So anyway... In the end, he remembered Shimei in his old age, and uh, Shimei did meet the sword in the end. So, but what I would say about David, before we get into the Psalms, is David was hot and cold. When David was good, he was spectacularly good. He was God's friend. When he was cold, he was very, very bad. Did some very things. But one thing is, we would not say David was lukewarm, right? He certainly was not lukewarm. And of course, you're all familiar with this here in Revelation about uh, the last day church here. I know what you've done. I know that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. But because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out from my mouth. And I think God would uh, wish that he'd have a few more people who were really uh, passionate about it and not uh, just lukewarm. We couldn't make that accusation of David. Okay, how do we do 150 chapters here of the the Psalms? Well, obviously we can't. So I'm just going to go through and mention a few major uh, trends and I think uh, an important way of um, a model for us of communication with God. I love this Psalm where David says, I have asked the Lord for one thing, one thing only do I want. You know, think about how you would complete this verse. What one thing, one thing only would you ask for? 
And I, I love the one thing here that David was asking for, to live in the Lord's house all my life, to marvel there at his goodness and to ask for his guidance. And the ultimate science, I mean, I think the subject of greatest depth, again, is the character of God. I mean, I think there is no end to that. And David here wants to dwell in God's presence, to marvel there at his goodness, kind of person he is. And that, that kind of sentiment uh, really makes David, I think, a man after God's own heart. But we have a lot of these psalms. You know, about one-third of the psalms are uh, sometimes called complaint psalms. And uh, the, the one that has very passionate language here is Psalm 139. Let's read through this and see if we can understand why this is in the Bible. Lord, you have examined me and you know me. You know everything I do. From far away, you understand all my thoughts. You see me, whether I'm working or resting. You know all my actions. Even before I speak, you already know what I will say. You are all around me on every side. You protect me with your power. Your knowledge of me is too deep. It's beyond my understanding. Where could I go to escape from you? Where could I get away from your presence? If I went up to heaven, you would be there. If I lay down in the world of the dead, you would be there. And I won't read the whole passage, but it goes on and on with God. You know me. You know me. There's nowhere I could go to get away from you. You know what I'm going to say before I say it. It's just on and on. The days allotted to me had all been recorded in your book before any of them ever began. Oh God, how difficult I find your thoughts. How many of them there are. If I counted them, they would be more than the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Now, and why is David just you know, telling God over and over, you know me, you know what I'm thinking, your thoughts are really incredible. And then finally, he comes out with this. Oh God, how I wish you would kill the wicked. How I wish violent people would leave me alone. They say wicked things about you. They speak evil things against your name. Oh, Lord, how I hate those who hate you. How I despise those who rebel against you. I hate them with a total hatred. I regard them as my enemies. And it almost seems like uh, David here is saying, you know, God, you know what's on my mind. You know what I'm thinking, right? And uh, why don't I just be honest here and tell you? All right, I'm going to tell you. Since you know what I'm thinking, I'm going to tell you what I'm thinking. And this is what I think about these people. And, um, you know, we sometimes, uh, I know I've sometimes uh, had this mode of communication with God where uh, you're consumed with one thought all day. And then at the end of the day, maybe before you go to bed, you pray and you think God is quite pleased if at that time, maybe you pray for the missionaries in Africa. It's not that you are actually thinking about it, you're that concerned about the missionaries in Africa. And by the way, with what's going on in Kenya, we should pray about the people over there. But anyway, it's not on your mind at all, but it's very impressive to God in your mind if you talk about uh, the missionaries in Africa at that time. Even though God knows you've been dwelling on this uh, person who has been irritating you all day long, would God rather have you express to him the hateful thoughts that you've been having all day, or should our prayers be pure? and not reveal any of the, uh, the hatred that is inside of us. Well, I find it interesting here that after David goes on and says, I hate them with a total hatred, then he concludes it this way. Examine me, O God, and know my mind. Test me and discover my thoughts. Find out if there's any evil in me. Sounds just like there might be. Find out if there's any evil in me and guide me in the everlasting way. See, I think... When does healing occur? It occurs when we are open 
and we're honest. God knows what we're thinking anyway. And so when we communicate with God in this way, uh, I think this is how the, the healing process begins. So I see the Psalms as a model of how we should come to God in prayer. Honestly, openly, it's all out on the table. And we've read the words of Moses and Abraham, how honest those men were with God. Uh, remember Abraham or Moses said, you've treated me so cruelly here in the desert, why don't you just put me to death? I mean, he felt that bad at certain times. Look how Job communicated with God. So prayer ultimately is talking with God as we would talk with a friend. I see that as uh, basically what prayer is like. It's like a sick patient coming to a doctor. Um, I had a patient not too long ago, a lady in her 70s who had headaches. And that's an unusual age for headaches to begin. And so we did a big workup, brain scan, everything under the sun to figure out why this lady was having headaches. And she kept coming back. It was about nine months. We tried a variety of things for her headaches. Uh, asked her several times about, uh, is there any uh, stress in your life? And uh, no, just denied it completely. And then finally, about nine months into it, uh, you know, I'm examining her and she had a big bruise on her arm on one side and then on the other leg. And I just was asking her about this and she just broke down, started crying, and finally told me that her grandson who was living with her was physically abusing her and had been doing so for, you know, quite a period of time. And just, well... That finally came out that long into it. It's been going on for over a year. So um, I called the police and, you know, things were taken care of. And I saw her back several months later and um, her headaches are gone. Now, obviously, it's not always that easy. But if we come to God and we don't express what is really going on in our lives, it's like a patient coming to a psychiatrist or whatever. If you just say everything's fine, everything's great. Uh, are you ever going to experience any restoration or healing? Okay, so we come to God honestly and openly. And some of you have probably heard of these uh, prayer wheels, uh, which are common, uh, have been used for a long time, where a prayer or a mantra or something is on the wheel, and there's a special technique of spinning it at a certain speed and in a direction. And the reason is uh, you get the same credit, basically, as I understand it, as if you had actually said the prayer, if the wheel is spinned. And so, um, you know, this seems kind of uh, unusual to us, but do we sometimes have prayers that are memorized and we don't even think about it, but uh, we just say it and there's no thought process, there's no real communication with God at all at that moment. We've just kind of regurgitated a prayer that we've memorized. And I think there has to be an intellectual exchange with God when we pray. I mean, even like the Lord's Prayer uh, starts out, hallowed be thy name. What is name? It is character. And so we're asking that God's character may be revered and seen by all throughout the world. I mean, there are deep meanings to all of these words. So uh, repetitive and memorized prayer, uh, it's great to memorize these wonderful prayers, but there has to be uh, an intellectual exchange with God. Repetitious praise, uh, you know, this is not against a, a worship experience involving music at all, but if our mind is turned off simultaneously and it's just an experience, uh, again, I think prayer involves a real exchange of thought and ideas, and prayer is certainly not a, a wish list where we come to God in the morning with a list and we come to him in the evening with a list. Um, imagine you had a friend like that. 
and you just called up and you went through your list and then you hung up. You know, that's not much of a relationship. I love the description of Luther who did not pass a day without <coughs> devoting three hours at least to prayer. And how would your grades survive if you did that? But they were hours selected from those the most favorable to study, full of adoration, fear, and hope. And notice the description as one who observed as one, as when one speaks to a friend. Okay, that is ideal. And, and it really is a friendship that develops as our communication with God grows. So one more example here of this, and I believe this is Psalm 77. Lord, if I argued my case with you... Oh, no, this is now uh, Jeremiah. I'm sorry, but Jeremiah, some of the Psalms are of Jeremiah. This is actually from the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah would say, Lord, if I argued my case with you, you would prove to be right, yet I must question you about matters of justice. Why are the wicked so prosperous? Why do dishonest people succeed? You plant them and they take root. They grow and bear fruit. They always speak well of you, yet they do not really care about you. But Lord, you know me. You see what I do and how I love you. Isn't this kind of like Psalm 139? You know me. You know what I'm thinking. And so again, Jeremiah, it's almost like, okay, what's on your mind, Jeremiah? And it out comes. Drag these evil people away like sheep to be butchered. Guard them until it is time for them to be slaughtered. How long will our land be dry and the grass in every field be withered? Animals and birds are dying because of the wickedness of our people who say, God doesn't see what we are doing. So he's honest. He opens up. You know what I'm thinking. You know me. And so he then describes what's on his mind. Then I love the, the response here. The Lord said, Jeremiah, if you get tired racing against people, how can you race against horses? If you can't even stand up in open country, how will you manage in the jungle by the Jordan? It's a gentle rebuke uh, from God here at Jeremiah's wish for the enemies to be butchered. And uh, I'd love it if God would provide a commentary after each and every verse and chapter and psalm. But here we see a real exchange between uh, God and Jeremiah. But I think that's what goes on when we thoughtfully reflect and communicate with God. Here's another example in Psalm 77. I cry aloud to God. I cry aloud and he hears me. In times of trouble, I pray to the Lord. All night long, I lift up my hands in prayer, but I cannot find comfort. When I think of God, I sigh. When I meditate, I feel discouraged. He keeps me awake all night. I'm so worried I cannot speak. I think of days gone by and remember years of long ago. I spend the night in deep thought. I meditate, and this is what I ask myself. Will the Lord always reject us? Will he never again be pleased with us? Has he stopped loving us? Does his promise no longer stand? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has anger taken the place of his compassion? And then I said, what hurts me most is this, that God is no longer powerful. Now, we know God is powerful. He's always powerful. But David at this time, assuming this was written by him, really felt that he wasn't. Okay, and uh, so he's, he tells God. I mean, this is a very open, honest prayer. This is exactly how he felt. But notice how it continues. I will remember your great deeds, Lord. I will recall the wonders you did in the past. I will think about all that you have done. I will meditate on all your mighty acts. 
Everything you do, O God, is holy. No God is as great as you. You are the God who works miracles. You showed your might among the nations. By your power, you saved your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. It sounds like he's feeling better. When the waters saw you, O God, they were afraid, and the depths of the sea trembled. The clouds poured down rain. Thunder crashed from the sky, and lightning flashed in all directions. The crash of your thunder rolled out, and flashes of lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. You walked through the waves. You crossed the deep sea, but your footprints could not be seen. You led your people like a shepherd with Moses and Aaron in charge. And again, the point is, as David opens up with his great despair, God, you don't seem powerful, but then he reflects on it in the prayer. And he has conversation with God. In the end, you get the sense that he's now totally relieved as he remembers all the great things that God has done in the past. Again, that's a model of our experience in our uh, communication uh, with God. Now, just going through a few uh, specific psalms to make some other points, this comes out very frequently in uh, Psalm 1. God blesses those people who refuse evil advice and won't follow sinners or join in sneering at God. Instead, the law of the Lord makes them happy, and they think about it day and night. They are like trees growing beside a stream, trees that produce fruit in season, and always have leaves. Some versions express that uh, David would delight in God's law. But his delight is in the law. And this is repeated here uh, in Psalm 119, the longest psalm, which is wonderful. And I won't read through this for the sake of time here, but David goes on and on about his great delight in the law. And I'm just wondering if you heard that, if that was a big uh, um, emphasis um, Maybe in this Bible study, I delight in the law. Does that sound like legalism? Um, What does that mean to delight in the law? Um, We don't uh, usually express things that way. And and when the word law is used, what comes to mind? Ten Commandments or what, uh, what law was David delighting in? Do you delight in the law? Well, um, I think it's very helpful here that in, when we think of the law, we think of the law, ultimately what all law points to. In Romans 13, the only obligation you have is to love one another. Whoever does this has obeyed the law. If you love others, you will never do them wrong. To love then is to obey the whole law. So when we think of law, law is pointing towards ultimately love. Said so many times in Galatians 5, for the whole law is summed up in one commandment. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And of course, Jesus would say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And then would go on to say, the whole law of Moses and the teaching of the prophets depend on these two commands. So again, when David is longing to be in God's presence to reflect on his goodness, which we just read in Psalm 27, I think that's the same thing as saying he delights in the law. The law points toward the lawgiver and to his character. And just to kind of as a side note here, Uh, You're probably familiar with this verse in Revelation 12 about the dragon was furious with the woman and went off to fight against the rest of her descendants. And what is the mark of these people? All those who obey God's commandments and are faithful to the truth revealed by Jesus. And for most of my experience, I had imagined here all of those who don't commit adultery, don't lie, don't cheat, steal, keep a, a certain day of the week, Uh, and so on. But of course, we remember that uh, those who crucified Jesus kept that list, right? And so ultimately, all law is, and I think the characteristic of these people is 
love for one another, even for enemy. And notice, what's the other thing? They're faithful to the truth revealed by Jesus. Faithful to a picture of God who is exactly like Jesus. Faithful to that truth. So again, to delight in the law, I think, is to delight in the principles of God's kingdom, which is ultimately other-centered, selfless love. This verse, if we could, sorry, that's so small there, but if we can encapsulate a verse here that has just such an incredible depth of meaning, it's this in Psalm 9:10. Those who know you, Lord, will trust you. There is a lot of depth here, and I would say, made a little special effect there. This is the essence of everything important. Those who know you, God, will trust you. We've talked about this before, but the meaning of the word to know, it's practically in every book of the Bible, to know. Remember, eternal life, we don't, shouldn't think of in terms of living forever. That's a given. Eternal life is ultimately about a relationship with a person, and it's about intimacy with a person. Eternal life means to know you, the only true God. How do we know the only true God? Well, it's ultimately by knowing Jesus Christ, whom you sent. He came to reveal to us what God is like so that we know him. We enter into this intimacy. Paul would say, everything is worthless when compared with the priceless gain of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I may have Christ and become one with him. Again, describing the intimate, knowing relationship with God. Jesus comes back. What does he say to those who don't enter heaven? Go away. I never knew you. And this is not a cold, impersonal. This is, again, the meaning of the word to know in the Bible. There's no intimacy. There's no relationship. You don't know the truth about my character. Uh, Go away. I never knew you. He knows every hair on their head, right? But it's in the meaning of the word to know. So that's the first part. Those who know you, Lord, will trust you. Trust is such an essential element here. Abraham put his trust in the Lord, and because of this, the Lord was pleased with him and accepted him. I like the message translation of this. And he believed or trusted, believed God, and God declared him set right with God. Jesus came not only that we know God, but if we know God, there's a natural trust that develops simultaneously. Now, it's true some people have known God and have chosen not to trust in God. Lucifer, Satan would be the best example, dwelled right in God's presence, right? Knew God, but yet still, uh, for reasons we've talked about, does not like God the way he is and certainly does not trust him. So to know God is to trust him. And righteousness by faith, what does that mean? Well, righteousness, it is to be right with God By trusting him, it is to have a righteous character through a trusting relationship with God. And all of this then is based on an intimate knowledge of his character. Now, as the last uh, psalm I want to go over before we close here is Psalm 69. This is a powerful messianic psalm. And we'll just go through one as a representative of many messianic psalms. But this one's quite amazing in the parallels with Jesus. Save me, O God, the water is up to my neck. I'm sinking in deep mud and there's no solid ground. I'm out in deep water and the waves are about to drown me. I am worn out from calling for help and my throat is aching. I have strained my eyes looking for your help. 
Those who hate me for no reason are more numerous than the hairs of my head. My enemies tell lies against me. They are strong and want to kill me. They made me give back things I did not steal. And I underlined the parts here that are quoted about Jesus in the New Testament. In John 15, this, however, was bound to happen so that what is written in the law may come true. They hated me for no reason at all. And so this here was pulled out of uh, Psalm 69. And certainly the people did hate Jesus for no reason at all. It goes on. And here we have a little difficulty. My sins, O God, are not hidden from you. Jesus, of course, was sinless. You know how foolish I have been. Don't let me bring shame on those who trust in you, sovereign Lord Almighty. Don't let me bring disgrace to those who worship you, O God of Israel. It is for your sake that I've been insulted and that I am covered with shame. I'm like a stranger to my relatives, like a foreigner to my family. My devotion to your temple burns in me like a fire. The insults which are hurled at you fall on me. And of course, both of these were quoted several times. In John 2, his disciples remembered that the scriptures said, my devotion to your house, O God, burns in me like a fire. And Paul would quote the second part of this in Romans 15, for Christ did not please himself. Instead, as the scripture says, the insults which are hurled at you have fallen on me. Again, all comes from Psalm 69. I humble myself by fasting and people insult me. I dress myself in clothes of mornings and they laugh at me. They talk about me in the streets and drunkards make up songs about me. But as for me, I will pray to you, Lord. Answer me, God, at a time you choose. Answer me because of your great love, because you keep your promise to save. Save me from sinking in the mud. Keep me safe from my enemies, safe from the deep water. Don't let the flood come over me. Don't let me drown in the depths or sink into the grave. Answer me, Lord, in the goodness of your constant love. In your great compassion, turn to me. Don't hide yourself from your servant. I'm in great trouble. Answer me now. Come to me and save me. Rescue you, me from my enemies. You know how I'm insulted, how I'm disgraced and dishonored. You see all my enemies. Insults have broken my heart and I am in despair. I had hoped for sympathy, but there was none. For comfort, but I found none. And again, we have a very interesting parallel just as we read on. When I was hungry, they gave me poison. When I was thirsty, they offered me vinegar. And of course, you know the story of Jesus on the cross. They gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall. Okay, again, the parallel drawn between Psalm 69 and what actually happened to Jesus. And in John 19, we read, we read uh, that after this, when Jesus knew that everything had been finished, he said, I'm thirsty. He said this so that the scripture could finally be concluded or fulfilled. And Psalm 69 talks about him being thirsty and I guess the question is, uh, was Jesus really thirsty? When, it, when he was hanging on the cross, did he need to remember, let's see, there are three more things I need to do to fulfill prophecy. And, oh, that's right. And then he, he was thirsty. Um, no, I think he was really thirsty. Okay, Jesus was not trying to remember little details. He's got to do this or that. He really was thirsty. But some have described it as, well, he just mechanically went through it to, to show us some things from the Old Testament. Now, here's the last part, and this is what I want to challenge you with a little bit. All of these parallels with Jesus, and then Psalm 69 concludes like this. May their banquets cause their ruin. May their sacred feasts cause their downfall. Strike them with blindness. Make their backs always weak. 
Pour out your anger on them. Let your indignation overtake them. May their camps be left deserted. May no one be left alive in their tents. They persecute those those who you've punished. They talk about the sufferings of those you've wounded. Keep a record of all their sins. What did Jesus say? Father, forgive them. Don't let them have any part in your salvation. May their names be erased from the book of the living. May they not be included in the list of your people. But I am in pain and despair. Lift me up, O God, and save me. And uh, we're, we're out of time here, but I just wanted to make the point here that everything related to Jesus, relative to Jesus, is dark in a sense. This is what David experienced. This is what David thought under a very similar experience. Uh, But again, our ultimate person we get marching orders from is Jesus Christ, who forgave those who crucified him. We contrast here between David and Jesus Christ. And all inspiration uh, should be filtered through the life and death of Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Father, please be with us. May we have the kind of friendship, communication, and relationship with you that David had. And may we enter into this friendship and so be transformed into a Christ-like character. Amen.